In this episode of the Tall, Friendly, Atheist Dad podcast, I sit down for a wide-ranging chat with Matthew from the Still Unbelievable podcast about religion, politics, and bad creationist arguments. I hope you enjoy. Here's the intro. Hey guys, this is Justin from The Prince of Memegypt. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Prince of Memegypt and on Twitter at Internet Moses. You're listening to Damien, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad, on the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast, guaranteed to be gluten-free. We are victim of illusion. You are listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. And the next 30 seconds are brought to you by our album Invisible Light, available at our Bandcamp website. So far from lies and hypocrisy, returns to energy and silence becomes breathe. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of some kind of mashup between different hemispheres is probably the best way to do that. This is your regular Still Unbelievable host, Matthew. And who have I got on the line here? You have Damien, the tall, friendly atheist dad. Excellent. Excellent. And it's I'm not longer. I was going to say, as you can tell from my accent, I may not be in the same hemisphere as you. Absolutely not. Certainly not in the same town anyway. We can tell that one for sure. So, um, yeah, so we've got in touch because we listen to each other's podcasts as well as doing podcasts. So it's early in the morning for me. It's 8 a.m. on a Sunday. I am usually up because as regular listeners of Still Unbelievable know, I have chickens and they need getting up when the sun gets up. I have (laughs) coffee in the morning. I need to have my breakfast anyway. And the wife gets up on a Sunday to go to church. So, I'm up at this time anyway. What time mm-hmm. is it where you are? Is it 5 p.m., uh, something like that? Yeah, ju- it's just after 5 p.m. Uh, in Melbourne, Australia. I'm looking at my window. There's a very lovely golden sunset happening uh, right about now. Strangely enough, at 8 a.m. this morning, I was doing another podcast. Uh, I have another politics podcast called Let's Save the Governor General that I do with a lovely lass from uh, the south of England. So awesome. when we were doing that, she was complaining, oh, my God, it's so late at night. And I was going, oh, I've just woken up. Hey. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's all like full full circle today. 
Excellent. No, I didn't um, know yes. about that one. I'm going to have to check that one out. Oh, please, please do. Um, it's probably not as big as uh, as my atheism one, but uh, yeah, politics does uh, rankle a few feathers. But no, I've always had an interest in politics and society and culture and just how you know how how it all works together. And um, it's called Let's Save the Governor General. Uh, we're not we're not strictly monarchists. So how can I say? There's three people on the panel. Uh, one of them is a very staunch anti-monarchist. Uh, me and Phoebe is kind of like a somewhat anti-monarchist, and I'm more of the I don't really care either way kind of guy. But it was just it's just a pithy title that we made up and decided to decided to run with that. Cool, that's some interesting subject. So let's run with that for a bit then. Mon- of course, I'm, I don't have a strong feeling about a monarchy. I know okay. there there is a small but growing number of the UK population who are who are prob- would probably wave the anti-monarchist flag. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, the Matthew, I think there's always been a portion of the British population who have been anti-monarchists. Like you can go back to the 18, 17, yeah, 1600, yeah. And there's always been this kind of anti, this very small and sometimes influential anti-monarchist movement. Yes, that's probably very true. I think nowadays they take an. I think the angle that they take is probably changed over the years. Indeed, I think because in the like, past, um, and monarchy were a bit brutish. <laughs> and whereas nowadays that's that's not really a charge that we can they're, they're uh, more oaf, they're more oafish nowadays rather than yes British. yes yes <laughs> quite so i think a lot of people view the monarchy as being a sap on the public purse mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so having said that it's not so much me personally it's not so much that i'm in favor of the monarchy it's more that i'm against the change for change's sake yes so if we are going to replace the monarchy I don't want it to be that we replace it with something just for the sake of replacing it with something because we don't like the idea of a monarchy. I want there to be some sort of functional alternative that we've laid the case out for is what is more what I, and I remember, so back in 1999 in Australia, we actually had a Republican referendum and uh, much to everyone's dismay, the no vote actually got up. And a lot of partly, partly it was because the model proposed uh, was that the parliament would choose a president instead of uh, a direct election from the people. Yep. And since then, uh, there's been talk of having another uh, Republican referendum, but like no one, especially in the current political climate, I don't think anyone's uh, really broaching the, they might broach the topic when Queen Elizabeth passes on, but that probably won't be for another couple of hundred years the way she's going at the moment. <laughs> I, know. I know, I've only known the one queen, the one Ex- Exactly. This is, life, yes. <laughs> you are right, it is, it, is, it is just so weird. I actually saw a, a photo the other day um, where, like, it was Queen Elizabeth and it had, like, I think America, Britain, uh, France and Germany, and it had a timeline of all the different presidents and prime ministers that those countries have had it's just yes. it's just oh my god like she's i think she is immortal this is the this is the weird thing she is and i think uh you're probably quite right about the subject being broached uh, then because despite what the rest of her family may do i think mm-hmm. she actually commands a fair bit of love and respect because of who she is yeah. and the uh, olympic game the 2012 london olympic games opening ceremony where the queen oh, yes. actually was involved in the ceremony in quite a comic james bond <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and oh, I saw that. the, the nation that, yes. loved it the nation absolutely loved it and it, yeah. it was really good and i think only she could pull that off i don't think there's another member of her family who would have received quite no. so much love and adoration what, for, for that Charles jumping out of parachute yeah, yeah i know <laughs> but no, but I think one of the one of the wonderful things is that because she's so hands off, that that's probably why. Like if, like obviously hundreds of years ago, you know the monarchs were a lot more hands on with how yeah. they ran the country. Whereas the queen, this is probably one of the things one of the things that's worked in her favour is that she's very hands off. And even though yeah. you could argue that your current prime minister is doing such a bad job of running the country. But no, she will let the people decide who goes into the parliament and she will yeah. sign off on whatever they choose. And it's a, yeah, because back in 19, oh, God, there's a bit of a history lesson here. Back in 1977 in Australia, we had our own constitutional crisis where um, the parliament had blocked supply. And so then what happened was the governor general had communicated back to, uh, back to uh, Buckingham Palace about how exactly what to do. And eventually the prime minister actually got dismissed by the governor general. And that caused a lot of, a lot of controversy. But basically the prime minister at the time, uh, Gough Whitlam had made a, he, he'd made a lot of unilateral decisions. Uh, some of them were really good and some of them were really bad. But um, because of the toxic political climate at the time, um, essentially the opposition party had control of the Senate and were refusing to guarantee supply which is the the annual finance bills does that parliament need to uh, you know appropriate money and all, all that kind of stuff and so yeah there was a bit of a stalemate and eventually yeah the the, the governor general decided to dismiss the prime minister and the and the cabinet uh, which led to the famous line uh, may god save uh, may god save the queen because nothing will save the governor general right okay so that was a little, little bit of an australian history lesson but the Queen didn't get involved at all. It was probably the one time in Australian history that she could have, you know, flown down on the plane and, uh, you know, laid down the law, but she didn't. And so that that's that, that's the Queen's style, just very hands-off and uh, let, yeah. let the subjects sort themselves out and uh, she'll keep on uh, petting the corgis. <laughs> yes, quite. Now, I, my knowledge on this level of British uh, democracy isn't strong it isn't particularly great but i think the queen technically has the power to dissolve government if she yes. so chooses and to give you a hint as to where my politics are i would be delighted if she were to do that i'm i'm with you i'm with you as well um just because i think one of the jobs that a that a political leader has is to instill respect and confidence in the office yes that they have and i can't see that uh mr johnson is uh, affecting that no absolutely not he is poisoning trust in government yeah and i think with the power. with the whole uh party gate thing you know i think there's 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 only so many times you can say i didn't know the rules or wasn't too sure what the rules were <laughs> yes. um i didn't lie to parliament no i i absolutely absolutely didn't yeah yes but i think there's a there's a flip side though to the queen exercising that power if indeed she does have it and in that that power might then be subsequently removed from the monarch <laughs> 
because uh, a government doesn't want that to be done again. Yes, yes, that's. So uh, it's, however, it's, however, the the queen would have to sign off on the relinquishing of her power, because Parliament is subject to the authority of the queen. So in in effect, if Parliament did ask the queen to not have that power to remove governments it'll be like the queen giving up something and uh yeah it's a yeah. uh, it could it could happen but um yes yeah, bit of a i think she would take a much more diplomatic approach if she was asked to relinquish that but yeah you never you never you never quite know but uh, one thing that does strike me uh as weird about your particular system is the house of lords where people are basically born into parliament yeah like the, the the hereditary titles and the peers actually yeah. get passed down, which is a uh, yes. There is lots of opposition to that, and there, there are multiple attempts to try to remove that. I don't know why we haven't managed to do it, because I think there's enough support in the UK mm-hmm. for that to change. So yep. I can only suspect that there there are repercussions to that change which people haven't been able to work out. But yes, that that needs to change. But there's we need much broader, more sweeping powers than just removing our hereditary peers, because frankly, they're not actually a huge number of our peers, because there are other peers who get appointed by the present government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the government that's in charge at the time appoints the people who they like. And sometimes yeah. money changes hands as part of that decision making oh, process. No, so we also no. need to change that. Okay, so that's uh, and I think you also need money to uh, upgrade your Parliament House as well because I think it was built back in the 1800s and yeah. uh, it's kind of falling apart. Yeah, is what I've uh, yes. is what I've heard. Yes, which gets on to another way in which I feel about public buildings. We have in the UK we have a large number of very old buildings, mm-hmm. and we have this system of listed buildings where an old building which has some kind of of significance for yeah some kind of historical yep. significance for one reason or another so you get grade one grade two grade three kind of listed. i think grade one listed there's rules about what you can do in the occupancy uh, yep, yep. Of, of it and where my employer for example has a listed building yeah. and so what we had to do was we had to change a lot of the windows in the building last summer mm-hmm. well, actually matthew can i can also be able to say is a the higher is is a the most restrictive category Yes, yes. So, yeah, okay, great, yeah, right. great, yeah. The the lower the number, the higher the category. Yeah. Um, but, I, I, but I don't know what category my employer's building is. It's it's in Clifton in Bristol, which is quite an old historical part of Bristol, right? Uh, almost overlooks Clifton Suspension Bridge, which, if you know this part of England at all, it's a, a very. Uh, very to a point, it's, it's, it's basically like a, a football a football kick away from Cardiff, isn't it? You, pretty much yes yeah yeah um so anyway so we had to replace all the windows in the building and the all the windows were timber sash windows now a sash window is where the lower half of the window slides up and down on a cord okay. which is hidden inside I, the frame and it's counterweighted so that it balances it's it's quite funky but it's victorian technology <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's um and it's a single pane of glass so there's absolutely no heat retention in them whatsoever Yep. So we had to replace all of these windows. And because of the listed status of uh, the building, we have to replace them identical. So we had to replace them with wooden framed sash windows, which slide up, <laughs> which in and of itself, I don't have a problem with because they can look nice. 
But yep. we also had, because the originals are also single pane of glass, given their age, we can't put double glazed frames oh. into them. So it completely Yikes. kills the heat retention of the railway. Thinking, we're putting in this modern building to replicate something that's 100 years old. Why can't we do it using some kind of modern technology so that we can increase yep. the efficiency of the building? You know, there's a there's a blatant stupidity in, in the ruling there. <laughs> yes. And I'm all for recording what these buildings were like mm-hmm. and then just freaking knocking them down and building something that's fit for purpose. We don't need to bend over backwards, spend ridiculous amounts of money keeping yep. a building in the state that it was 100 years ago. It serves no useful purpose whatsoever for current and future generations. Just mm. bulldoze the whole thing, build something appropriate for the, the, for the location, for the use that it's going to be, so that it meets all of our energy and efficiency and heating requirements. It becomes cheaper to run in the long run, and we mm. can actually build something that represents today's technology and today's stylistic inputs and if people really want to know what used to be there we can just put a picture on the wall we don't need to bend over backwards to maintain these crumbling old stuff and we should do exactly the kind of same with our parliament buildings as well it's utterly pointless and a waste of resources to maintain old buildings in the state that they were telltale real if you're matthew don't hold back. <laughs> no, I know. So no, I, I suspect that I might be in a minority and it might be a popular view, but that's the view mm-hmm. that I hold. No, no, I, I'm kind of with you in that, like, especially when it causes like, – I suppose the question I have, like, in this particular building, is there anything else that represents the historic value of – what there is like is there like a facade is there like a, a brickwork pattern is there like any yes, hatching there is, is there? yeah yeah there is a, there's a frontage uh, facade and oh, it's representation okay. it's a representative of the kind of opulent residence that we had at the time with a dual entry sweeping driveway and and, and that kind of Ooh. thing yeah but so what you can record it in documentation you don't need to have <laughs> yeah. it there visually yeah, it's interesting. Actually, speaking of which, um, I'm sure you're you're very familiar with the TV show Neighbours. I I am I have watched it, but not for quite some time. Okay, that is actually filmed in my city. Really? Okay. I think I knew. And that. I and I actually drive through the suburb where Neighbours is filmed. Right. Out of all, I've never actually driven past the street. The, the street is basically like one and a half blocks in from the main highway that I use to to go to go to work. Okay. But um, I think there's actually an application in the works to protect the frontage of all the streets on this street that is Ramsey Street. Right. In in neighbours. So actually, so so Ramsey Street is made up of a handful of streets on I think it's called Pin Oak Court. Right. And there's like an adjacent street as well that they use for outside filming. And there's actually someone has put in a request for a her- what's called a heritage overlay on the front of those of the houses that make up the residence of the fictional Ramsey Street. So does this mean people won't be able to change the colour of their front doors? Pretty much. The they, the they houses? Can, pretty yeah. much. Well, well, it all depends. If the overlay protects the whole house, they can't really do much. They can only do things to the inside of the house. But if they wanted to, like, build another story or extend it or widen it or anything, like anything that would change the appearance, No. If the overlay is only for the front of the property, then they can do whatever whatever they want to the rest. Right. And, yeah, it gets a little bit uh, 
uh, I suppose if you're the homeowner, it's a bit of a double-edged sword in that, hey, yeah. you live in one of the neighbor's houses, but you can't do anything to improve the value of it because there's this law yeah. that would that, that would apply. And it's um, – yeah, look, I, I like the charm of the old buildings, but – the problem is, is that to knock the to make those old buildings, they would have had to knock over other buildings to put that building up. Right. So why not knock over that building, the current building, to put a an even more suitable, modern, like you know, and like an architectural masterpiece in order to and then preserve that. So in five hundred years time. When you know Matthew's employer decides to knock down their building and make this you know high tech office, then in 500 years time they can go, oh look, in 2022 this building was this building was erected and look look at look what it is now. I suppose yeah. the, the point I'm trying to make is that someone's history is someone else's past. Yes. So what we have now will be the past to our children and to our yeah. children's children and you know 100 200 years down the track, what mm-hmm. we have now what we think is modern will just become, you know, something in a book yeah. uh, down, down the line or, or a photo, you know, or yeah. something. Yes, absolutely. So on the Neighbours thing, though, did I understand right that Neighbours is ceased filming or is about to cease filming and it's all going to come to an end because it's no longer being broadcast in the UK, I believe? It has. So, so apparently Channel 5, uh, where you are, was financing the production of it. And they're no longer financing financing the production of it. Right. So that so neighbors has officially come to an end. There's probably a few episodes in the can, but what happened was like the death knell was spelt um, for it a few years ago. So I'm not too sure how it works in, in your part of the world, but where I am, you, we have three major commercial television stations. And what they have is they have multi-channels. So, for example, Channel 7 will have Channel 7-1, Channel 7-2, Channel 7-3, oh, right, okay. uh, where they have, you know, um, like they play different like reruns of stuff or whatever. Then Channel 9 has the multi-channels as well. And then Channel 10. So Channel 10 was the broadcaster of Neighbours for decades, like even when I was a little kid. You know, I, I remember the wedding between uh, Charlene and Scott. If oh, you know, yeah. That's a bit that everybody remembers. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And, um, That's probably um, about when I actually last watched an entire well, episode, to be honest. There you go. No, um, I had uh, some of the neighbours trading cards, uh, just strangely wow. enough. That, that's how popular it was. How popular it was. But um, I was going to say, so ever since then, so but then a few years ago, Channel 10 made the decision to take the broadcasting off of their main station and put it on one of the multi-channels. Oh, right. So you wouldn't, unless you had a TV that was capable of uh, playing one of the uh, multi-channels, um, if you just didn't care, then it's a bit like t- taking your pop, your favorite TV show and putting it on like Wednesday at 10:30 p.m. You know, you just you're just not going to be up. You're not you don't really care yeah. about it. You know, you just so and that 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 decision was made a few years ago, and it's more to someone like me who doesn't care either way. Is I'm more surprised it lasted this long. Okay. Fair enough. And it kind of survived because of the Australian government mandate that a certain amount of TV content has to be locally produced. Right. So in order to uh, meet that requirement, okay, so, yeah, luckily yeah, Ch- Channel 10 had 
the British Channel 5 to finance production of the show. And, uh, yeah, it came to an end. But you've got you've got home and away there, though, though haven't you? Yes, we uh, allegedly. I, I, I have no. I I'm not going to admit to. to I'm, That's I fine just, because I don't uh, enjoy out, those kinds of programs. You know, those serial uh, soaps. I, it's it's just not in my DNA to like them. To be quite no, honest. no, same same here. But I had uh so over in Australia, Home and Away screens at seven p.m. after the six o'clock news. So the six the six o'clock news run that runs for an hour, and then right after uh, Home and Away plays. And so I was uh, I was watching the news and then I got, I got distracted by something and I had Home and Away playing in the background. And I was thinking, what is this trash? <laughs> it is just so – like if they're going to cut, you know, finance for one production, I'd rather they cut Home and Away. At least Neighbours had some class to it. Home right. and Away is just, you know, it's just mass media trash. But – um. But no, actually, you raise another point that I want, I want to briefly talk about. Um, my wife is is Asian, right? And the way Asians do soap operas is actually quite, uh, quite intriguing. Like the idea of a soap opera running for 15, 20 years is is almost unheard of. So what they'll do that they make drama, they make drama series, and so it'll be a. Now, the, the plots are all basically the same. Boy meets girl. Girl doesn't like boy. Second boy comes along. Girl likes second boy. First boy tries to win girl. Um, all, all, all this kind of, you know, trick. And then, like, the mother-in-law gets involved or the father-in-law gets involved or, you know, like, this all this con- concocted drama. And to me, the only real difference is, is it set in a high school? Is it set in medieval China? Is it set in a corporate office? Is it set in a, you know, in, in, in something else? But no, they, they will just make, you know, maybe 30 or 40 episodes of this particular series. And then when production wraps up, they will make another series that I would argue is based on a very similar contrived plot. But um, yeah, and so in China and Taiwan in particular, uh, drama series are incredibly popular. Yeah, so like, I've, I've been to Indonesia a few times and you can get like, you know, entire CDs full of or DVDs or VCDs of particular drama series, depending on which market you go to. And um if you have like a VPN or something, you can access things from Taiwan, um, and actually not not so much mainland China because of the uh, of firewalls and that. But yeah, you get this really, and so this is one of the things about living in having a cross cultural marriage is that like, like I never watch soap operas myself, but I I see my wife watch you know episode one of this particular drama series and it goes for like forty five minutes and you know, with ads. And, that, and then by the end of the night, she'll already be on like episode nine or ten. So, like, oh, my God, how long have you been up watching this? <laughs> it's really nice. Okay. It's the same. And then like maybe the next month, she'll be watching something else. And it's like, hold on. Isn't that the same actor? Isn't that the same plot? Isn't that what? <laughs> it's like, okay, whatever. But, but then she could point the question back at me. It's like, hold on. That show was running 15 years ago and that is literally the same actor in the same show playing the same character like how many times can someone rise back from the dead or survive <laughs> a car crash or a fire or you know or something and yeah, so, yeah neighbors had one of those ridiculous plot lines so in fact dallas if, um, uh, famously had one as well didn't they Somebody oh yes yes i remember after, after but sticking with australian 
television you guys have had a bit of a renaissance not no renaissance is probably the wrong word but you've had a mm-hmm. a surgence of some some fairly good shows coming up i've caught some australian made shows probably on netflix i'm trying to remember the names but they're 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 not so much drama they're they're cop shows and i think there's one of somebody on the run and there's one of a couple of girls who were oh crumbs i wish i i should have prepared for this but i didn't expect us to end up on australian tv but what i wanted to say was comparing some of these australian drama i'm going to say dramas dramas with Mm -hmm. the equivalents that we we have here in the uk is your production value is is noticeably lower we've uh, certainly if it's bbc we've we've Mm -hmm. bbc here in the uk has got experience and and money and so you can tell the difference between here in the uk say bbc and itv productions the bbc has definitely a a bigger production budget and they definitely the name bbc definitely has power to bring in better quality people and you can see that And, and i would say that some of your australian shows are in are in the middle they're not quite up to the standard of BBC, but certainly better than ITV. But, and this is the, the, the bit I'm getting to, but you guys have a noticeably different sense of humour and there's a dryness about yes. hard crime that you guys have, which I absolutely adore. You know, somebody, just a regular member of the public seeing a dead body and the response rather than panic and Whoops. screaming is a real dryness, he's dead mate kind of thing. <laughs> and I love it. I absolutely love it. And that's what I really like about the dramas that you guys are producing that I'm seeing on Netflix and stuff like that. You have a very different sense of humour that mm-hmm. is touches the dryness that I don't quite see enough here in the UK and is streets ahead of anything that the USA tries to I, Okay, well, uh, th- th- thank you very much for that uh, lovely compliment of, of our culture, but we are very... Um, it's interesting having uh, as many American friends. Uh, if you act, if you act, if you're active on Twitter, you'll definitely come across people from America. I've made lots of friends uh, from America on Twitter in the in the atheist space and even even in the Christian space. And yeah, like being Australian, you know, it kind of almost gives you this permission to be very dry, very sarcastic, very uh, very straightforward. With how you with with how with how you come across and almost um you're almost expected to swear um I, I don't know about how, how British culture goes but in in Australia it's almost like you're seen as weird if you don't swear yeah because I know that actually this is probably another thing we can we can chat about was that I when I came out of theism I took up swearing mm. because I I was raised to believe that you know if you said a, a bad word like I'm thinking there was there's a Bible verse in the New Testament says you know let not coarse language come from your mouth yeah. uh, no coarse humor no 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 anything like that and then I realized that the only people that care about that kind of thing are preachers or you know church groups trying to enforce like this good little boy behavior mm-hmm. and then when i took myself out of the environment I, I realized that not many people cared that i didn't swear so i started swearing and it's like okay cool but as long as you, and to me you know just swearing in the right context and you know as long as you're not doing it to be uh, i suppose offensive for the sake of offensive but you know you can always uh, I think a, a good swear word can add some humour to <laughs> to a particular yes, situation. Absolutely, uh, I agree. And I was the same. I almost went out of my way to avoid swearing as a Christian, and I mm-hmm. and I reversed that trend as part of my deconversion because I needed to get that out of my system. 
I've balanced back again and I don't swear half as much as I used to. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, All it, right. it was necessary. I needed to do it just to get that out. Of it was part of my decompression. <laughs> no, I, I, I do. I do get where you're coming from. But um, at the time uh, I deconverted, I'd been with my employer for about probably about 10 or so years. And I was famous as the guy who never swore. And then, you know, I was just uh, occasionally saying something to the owner of the company and I, I was talking about the traffic and I said, oh, you know, the, uh, this morning the traffic was fucked. And the, he looked at me like I'd shot a baby and said, Damien, did you just swear? <laughs> yeah, I did. And then, like, he called one of the sales managers over and said, Damo swore. <laughs> I was like, guys, you guys swear all the time. I'm just kind of ca- catching up to you. It's catching like, up, yeah. Uh, well, the, it is fun. Yeah, I've only had Sorry, the man. pleasure of uh, one visit to Australia. So I visited Australia because my wife's old childhood friend lives in Perth. I can, oh, and so yeah, we visited them for a couple of weeks over Christmas and New Year back in 2000. So a fair few years okay. ago. Yeah. And I remember seeing an advert. I think it was an advert on the telly. And it was a drink drive advert, given the time of year that it was. And it basically said, mm-hmm. if you drink and drive, you're a bloody idiot. And oh, yes. Had, yeah, that it is. had a picture yep. of a of a wrecked motor vehicle and emergency yep. vehicles. Yep. So it was quite blunt and stark. And that is typically Australian. In mm-hmm. the UK, that sort of advert would never wash. It simply oh, would not okay. be the Advertising Standards Authority in the UK. I just can't imagine that they would let that go. <laughs> oh, okay. And there are huge because- members of our culture who would be offended by by that yes yeah. whereas um, you guys actually, are just straightforward on it and i like that indeed indeed i was going to say in some uh some other states have tried uh, something even more edgy so they they use they they had a okay so they had a picture of, of like they said don't be a and then what they did was they had a p plate turned upside down to look like a d and then had ickhead after uh, behind that so yes yes that and then uh, there was another one that said i think something like on the roads don't be a and then had the letter w in front of an anchor right so don't be a w- anchor Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> and yeah that that got past the uh that got past the, the advertising people and uh, it was a uh, I don't know. I don't know if it affected the road toll at all, but it was uh, certainly like certainly memorable because that was about five or so years ago, and I'm still talking about it now. So mm. it is a. So I yeah, the way remember, yeah, we did a couple of long drives. So from from Perth, we drove down to the Margaret River, the wine region, oh, yep. and then we yep. drove north up to is it Coral Georgian. Bay or Shark Bay. Ah, yes, yep, yep, Um, that sounds sounds about right, yes. Yeah, and possibly a bit further. So we did a fair bit of driving up and down. And I remember seeing bits on the side of the road, and it was literally, it was a car that looked like it had been involved in a genuine accident on a Mm -hmm. frame with a sign behind it saying, don't drink and drive. And I think we were told that those were genuine vehicles driven by drunk people who had had been involved in a genuine incident. And in the UK, that would be over the line using something oh, real, uh, genuinely in something in a situation like that. But do you have a drink driving problem in the UK? Um, like, would you say it's a... I wouldn't it, say it's a problem. It, it has been in the past, 30 years ago, when I was younger than I am now, it certainly was. But we do have regular 
anti-drink drive campaigns and the police are out on the roads certainly in the run-up to the Christmas period pulling people mm-hmm. over much more proactively and okay. any kind of uh, and then obviously because our our so we have a breath testing system obviously mm-hmm. and I, wh- yep. whatever our, our limit is so the, the police get quite harsh on that and they they monitor uh, locations and so they become very proactive in pulling people over Okay. Just out of curiosity, do you have any of those reality TV shows like Highway Patrol where yes, like they'll yeah. have? Okay. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yes. I, I actually think they're they're a great. Uh, I actually quite like them because you actually see like you know police on the beat, police doing their jobs. Um, you, you see like a softer side of of, of yeah. cops as well. Um, you know, I actually don't mind. I mean, like the other the other week when I was driving my kids to school, I actually drove past someone who was getting pulled over. And so they were like, this, this, these two cop cars came flying around the corner and they're like a couple hundred metres up ahead of me, like the cop cars had pulled someone over. So when we drove past, out of the first car, there was a, a policeman who got out and then in the second car, there was a camera crew running out behind, <laughs> behind the policeman. Like, we, we started waving. <laughs> it's like, hey, we're, we're going to be on TV in a few months. But, um, but yeah, no, it's... Uh, yeah, we do have like, those. Um, and I have watched a few of them and you're right, they they do a good job of humanizing the police and seeing mm-hmm. some of the stuff that they actually have to deal with. You know, they're not everybody yeah. is being picked on. And sometimes the people that the police are getting involved with are sometimes really quite nasty people. Yes, uh, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, well, whereas you look at like cops from, from America and it's like, you know, they're taking down, you know, rapists and you know, like stuff like that. And it's like, Oh my God. Okay. All right. But no, um, one thing I do find weird about um, both our cultures contrasted with America is that we technically don't have church-state separation. No. If but you yet, think, if you think we about make it, it work better. This is this is this is the weird thing. Um, <laughs> it is like when you think about it, Queen, yeah. Queen her, her Majesty literally has her own church. Yeah. And one of her jobs is to run the Anglican Church. Yes. And, and I think it's like, it's, I, I'm going to say, going back to our earlier conversation, I think it's a hands off approach, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. has probably yeah. um, been influential on it being less of what's the word I'm looking for? Obs- no, not obsessively. Um, whatever word it is I want, but it, it just makes it that the church, the impact that the church has on the population is is less, is reduced as a result. Mm, yep. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, so when when contrasting with uh, with our American friends, and I think Andrew, there's something Andrew could uh, relate to, where it's almost an official doctrine in America that there is a, a church-state separation, but uh, religious fundamentalism seems to creep into a lot of facets of life, uh, particularly if you live in the in in the southern states. Yes, absolutely, and I'm glad you mentioned Andrew. I should have mentioned Andrew at the top. My apologies, Andrew, when you listen to this hey, for Andrew. you not being part of this. Damien and I are just having this conversation because I've got, had the week off from work and I just put a shout out on my Twitter saying, anyone fancy a conversation? I've got the time. I've got the capacity. It's relatively early in the morning for me here. Andrew's probably still fast asleep. We have got yep. a plan to have a specific conversation with Andrew. Indeed, so yes. we're, not, yep. we're not going to do that. That is not what this conversation is. This is just a filler chat. We are yep. going to have that conversation with Andrew about a specific uh, feature of Christianity because yes, of the yes. three times I was involved, it's <laughs> indeed, become indeed. quite challenging to do. Andrew and I have only managed one conversation 
with somebody in Australia before. There are practicalities which are awkward in trying to do it. So it's still on the schedule. We're going to work it out. Indeed, yeah, we will. And yeah, the, the the three the three time zones. Like with with this uh with the let's save the Governor General podcast, what helps is that one of my co-hosts lives in Tasmania, which is in the same time zone as as where I live. Yeah. And yeah, and the other person is is in England, and so yeah, we can kind of balance that. But yeah, add America into the mix, and yeah, it does get a little bit uh. And yeah, I do have to apologise because uh the last few months my work has gotten a a bit busier as well, and. Some of the hours aren't quite what I'm used to, and yeah, just getting getting around that. So yeah, but no, I do. I would love to <laughs> talk to interact with Andrew at some at some stage, and yes, uh, yeah, have that cool. have 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 that chat. Yeah, it's just one of those yeah one of those weird things. Like in in Australia, I, I think the way that we do religion is fairly similar to how you guys do it. In that, like, it's good. It, your congratulations on having a religious belief, but don't force it down our throats. Yeah, is is the way uh, is is the way to do it. And I think um, there was even pushback against. I know there was a guy whose YouTube channel I spend a bit of time on, where he even is protesting against uh, peers in the upper in in the Lord's house uh, having uh, having their position because of their religious uh, religious position. Right, which is uh, I forget the details, but yeah, he was he was against uh, bishops and that having having peerage in the in the in the House of Lords and so okay, all right, whatever. Yeah, see, but, yeah, I don't the, feel that strongly. I'm okay with having our our bishops or our archbishops, whatever, mm-hmm. um, having a place in the House of Lords because I think the House of Lords needs to, as much as possible, accurately represent a cross section of the population, and that mm-hmm. means yep. there needs to be christians and other religions also represented Indeed, in that yeah yep. and, and i think and i think as soon as we start discriminating against people on the basis of their religion it becomes like this pointing fingers and yeah you know you can it's actually this actually kind of touches on something that's this was an argument up until a few a uh, few months ago um we're actually australia's in the middle of an election campaign at the moment so in four weeks time we go to the polls for to vote in for, for our federal parliament at the beginning of the year actually beginning of this year and end of last year the government tried to pass what was called the religious discrimination act so there was a there was a committee set up a few years ago to examine the rights that religious people have in australia and one of the things I found was that there's no specific discrimination act that prevents discrimination on the basis of religion. And so the government attempted to pass a religious discrimination act. But one of the things that they fell over was that the act would possibly give schools the power to expel LGBTQ plus students and staff. So if you're working at a uh, particularly at a religious school, and someone found out you were either divorced or, you know, closet closet homosexual or transgender or anything like that, then they would have the power to expel you on the basis of whatever offended their religious sensibilities. Yeah. And and so that legislation it, it got it got committed. So basically, it got sent away to a committee, which is sort of like uh, the the go, the go away pile, the the, the two hard basket. And now that the government's called an election, um, they're, they're not going to worry about it until the next parliament, and that's if the current government gets returned. It's a delicate path to take that. Where do you draw the line between a religion is allowed to have 
its its own internal rules of, mm-hmm. of behavior yep and that religion's rules of behavior are oppressive towards others because surely yeah. at some yep. point a rule of behavior is at some level oppressive mm-hmm. depending on how loosely you define oppressive so where do we draw the line between a religion can have that level of oppression and a religion yep. can't? It's it's a delicate thing. And I think as a society, we're still trying to answer that question ourselves. Oh, indeed, indeed. There's a part of me that says allow religious schools as much discrimination as, as they want, as long as they're completely upfront about it. Okay. Which is like, you know, if you're going to be a bigot, then you must advertise that bigotry. So people know that if they're going to put their kids in your school, then they will know that this is this is the kind of stuff that you guys get up to. Whereas if you send your kids to a public school, then there's a lot more uh, restriction about what. So I think that one of the problems that the that this intended legislation had was that while it's meant to protect you from discrimination against you on the basis of your religion, what it doesn't seem to stop is the ability of you to dis- to discriminate against someone else on the basis of your religion. Yes, and I think that's where where the problems are. A few years ago, we had a big thing about allowing gay marriage here in the yes. UK. And mm-hmm. at the time that that was going through our parliament, I just so happened to be working in London. Yep. And so at so for a couple of weeks, I will get off a tube station, walk past our Houses of Parliament to mm-hmm. the office which I was working at and then back again. So and we have quite a tradition here in the UK where people are allowed to openly protest on a green outside that Houses of Parliament. And so that happens. And what tends to happen is news cameras are there. So I would see these people giving protesting their points of view about the the um, potential legalization of gay marriage. And it was mostly Christians opposing. There were people obviously in support as well in response to the opposition and there there were news cameras there. But I remember walking past it and seeing this shouting, the yelling and the banners and that. And the thing that went through my mind wasn't the rights and wrongs of it all, but I don't see anything dignified in the way these protests uh, are being carried out. Yes, it's their rights, but it, it didn't feel dignified and it didn't make me want to go and talk to those people. I just wanted to get past them and get on to where I was going, either to the office or back to the hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, but going back to your point, you know, yeah, people are allowed to protest, but if two people who are same-sex attracted are in love with each other and want to commit to each other publicly in a ceremony for the rest of their lives and they've not got any religious attachment to themselves Mm -hmm. at what point in that conversation in that equation does religion get a chance to have a say in it and i think that's what's going through my mind here these people are not religious if they have no intention of being religious, if their ceremony is not going to be religious, mm-hmm. why does religion get a voice in how they're going to live their life? That's a that's a that's actually, that's actually a good uh, a good question. Maybe because uh, religion believes it has the mortgage on marriage, 
you know, I I remember I distinctly remember uh, numerous Christians coming out and saying that God instituted marriage. The Bible yeah. instituted marriage. Marriage is a Christian institution. And I couldn't help but think that if you wanted a biblically proper set of laws to, uh, regarding marriage, then you'd have to ban divorce as well. You'd have mm. to ban divorce, but you then also have to allow polygamy because that's yep. that, there are numerous scriptures that allow polygamy. Yes. Yes. Interesting, that one. Um, I certainly, I'm trying to th- remember exactly what I did believe about marriage. I certainly believed it was a Christian institution because of what it's is it in Genesis where it says about uh, a man will leave his mother and father and go and live with uh, his wife. Become one flesh. flesh. So I always took that verse. I'm pretty sure I always took that verse as you know, God's authority on marriage. And as a result of that, I think I looked down on a wedding that wasn't church based. If people had a registry office wedding and they went straight off to, oh, yes. to the hotel. To the, actually, I, think say, I, actually somehow, said that. I, I was I, I was a lot like that. I, you know, if someone had just had a registry wedding, there's like, oh, you're not really trying hard enough. You're trying to spit yeah. in the face of the church. Yeah. You, you try. You're trying to replicate what you want, what we have. Yes. I remember one of my brothers getting married in the registry office and attending that. And I remember standing there as a Christian thinking, this isn't great. There's not enough people, you know, where are the songs? And, uh, and I was judging it from my expectations instead of appreciating yep. my brother's wedding for being my brother's wedding. Yep, and yep. in some ways I wish I could relive that without my Christian baggage so that I could appreciate it for yeah. him more appropriately. Yeah, yeah. But obviously that can't happen. No, um, no, I, I do, I do know, I do know where you, where you come from, and uh, this is the thing that fundamentalism, fundamentalism is, it's its own little cult. It kind of, uh, and this is, uh, and look, I have to admit that I still have some of the fundamentalist baggage uh, myself, and I'm, I'm working through that. And I have the uh, you know, transgender friends and homosexual friends and and all that who are, you know, showing me their their side of life. And I definitely don't judge judge them for anything. It's just a matter of you know if you want to convince me of your position, I'm more than happy to listen. And uh, I've had my mind change on, on on a few things. But um, yeah. But it's just like this whole thing that um a lot of the a lot of the anti-gay marriage uh arguments were god will be unhappy and think of the children mm. and if you think about it like if you're if you're going to use those arguments then one you have to ban divorce um you know and i don't, I don't see any christians uh protesting protesting against divorce um, and I don't see any Christians protesting against single parent families. Like, for example, let's say a, a, a woman has a child and her husband dies in, in, in a transport accident. You know, do you then, because you're thinking of the children, do you then make her get married ASAP so that the, the child has a father figure? Even if the woman has no love or affection or um how can i say or any attachment to the guy that you forced her to marry then you know if you're going to if you're going to do it for the sake of the children then yeah how far how far does that go and so i think that the the religious fundamentalist position is very myopic just just in that sense Mm. it's funny hearing you you say that i'm it sparked a memory of a conversation that i overheard 
decades ago, decades ago. So when I was, must have been nine, maybe 10 years old, my parents were going through a very unamicable separation. Yeah. And my, my dad was with somebody else. And everyone was um, professing Christianity. The school that I went to, that I was going to in Zambia at the time, was a school for missionary mm. children. So everybody was Christian. Everybody affirmed Christianity. Yeah. So I have this memory of my dad picking me up from school. It was with this other woman picking me up. It was, as you can imagine, an extremely traumatic time for me because yep. you know, at that age, for me, divorce was not only painful and hurtful to me but also morally wrong and uh, yeah, yeah, against yeah. god's law so for me as a as a preteen, it was mm-hmm. immensely traumatic on on multiple levels and i think a lot of the people around me adults included really were unsure on how to handle this situation but i remember my dad hearing overhearing my dad having a conversation with another dad you know it was a parent of a because it was the end of term, you know, the mass pickup was all the parents were coming on to decide to take children, yeah. because it was a boarding school in a remote part. Oh, okay, so, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah, that, that was right. So boarding school, so end of term, you know, all the parents mass pick up, pick everybody up, and there's a whole, the whole day is a, a celebration day, you know, and the kids do some things in front of the parents, and then all, all the parents stay overnight, and then they all get taken home the next day. Okay, so nice. It, so, it's a, it's a, yeah, so it's a very, very, very different scenario to what, People might be used to to to, to, to terrestrial schools, you know, schools in the UK, etc. So anyway, so I'm with with my dad because I haven't seen my dad for multiple months. So you know, all the children are hanging around their parents because I haven't seen them. So I'm with my dad, and you know, he's talking with one of the other dads about about staying over because for some of these parents, it's a two day drive back home again. Okay, yeah. So yeah. so it's an overnight stop on the way home. And my, so my dad's talking with uh, this other parent about uh, staying o- over at their house. And uh, the other parent says, well, I've only got the one spare room. And my dad says, it's OK, uh, we can share a bed. And this other parent mm-hmm. says, no, you won't. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember any more of what was said after that. It could well be that I recognised an uncomfortable situation and ran off to play because I didn't want to be there. Um, but I, I remember that. And so your what you've just been saying is, um, is uh, triggered that memory. And I, I don't know what conclusion to come to it from or, or how I feel about it now, reliving it all those years later. But that's the kind of thing that was going on. And that was the culture that I grew up in and lived in. And seeing my dad having been in and part of that culture for my entire growing up and then suddenly still profess Christianity, but for this other woman, completely live against it quite <laughs> openly and blatantly mm-hmm. was um, really, really problematic for me. And I think that was where a lot of my uh, relationship trauma came from. When I say relationship, I mean my parents' divorce trauma. Yeah, I, I, I it is, is Is moments like this and trying to meet and match what I saw and what I, what I witnessed and what I heard said with what I believed and and then what I was then experiencing in the breakup of yeah. my parents' relationship. Yeah, actually, I kind of, uh, and that's kind of triggering me, yeah, we're playing a swap, swap, swap bad childhood memories here because um, <laughs> unfortunately my, uh, my mum was an undiagnosed schizophrenic. Right. 
and she came from a, a very a very abusive environment um you know where her dad or my my maternal grandpa was famous for his bad temper right. and my stepdad uh grew up in uh just trying to think have you ever heard of the stolen generation the what generation the stolen generation no i don't think so uh, okay, okay this is a, a bit of a controversial topic but back in the I think for about the 1900s till about the 1960s, um, there was a government, I, I don't know whether it was a law, whether it was a policy, but what happened was, was that child welfare authorities would take Indigenous uh, children from their parents and raise them in mission schools. Wow. Yes. Uh, but what also happened, so my, my, my dad my said there was Indigenous, but what also happened was that they did that with white children as well, where if the government decided that if your parents weren't fit to be parents, then they would take the child and put them in some sort of orphanage or boys' home or, you know, uh, I think they call it a reform school or reform park or something, something like that. So if you were Indigenous, you're more likely to go to like a Christian missionary school and learn how to be white and speak English and be given an English name and basically forget your uh, forget your culture. Whereas if you were if you were white, um, you went to actually I'm just gonna see what they actually uh, what the actual name of it was. Uh, I have such strong feelings about that practice. I really do. Well, it's it's kind of horrible just to think that this is what we did to our children. This is, uh, you know, it's a uh, yeah. Okay, just uh, I'm just trying to think what actually. Uh, no, it's very hard to find on the wiki on the wiki machine, but um, yeah, it was a uh, yeah, it was basically like a, a almost like a, a a medium security prison for boys who uh, didn't have parents and. Uh, you know, and that was, uh, and, and I could tell that my stepdad had the trauma of that uh, into his, and the insecurity of that into his adulthood. And so, unfortunately, my mum being highly insecure and my dad also being highly insecure was just a, a bit of a bit of a toxic environment. And um, and that was one of the reasons I actually turned to religion was because it, it gave me that security that whatever happened, you know, I could trust Jesus to help make help make things better. Ah, okay. Lockheel Park Boys Training Center was 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 what it was called. Right. And I think boy boys training center kind of makes it sound like it like a, a college or a you know yeah. a, you know a, low, a bit like university or something. But no, it was uh it was it was basically a, a medium, medium security prison. Yeah. So it was like so they were gender segregated as well then. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Boys so you, you, yeah. Boys, uh, yeah. Boys center and the girls center. Yep, correct. Yes, yes. Um, and there were plenty more. I think there were plenty more boys centers around than there were girls. And but you know there were they were definitely gender gender segregated. Whereas in in the indigenous system, and I use system in system in inverted commas, is just that yeah you would chuck into a, a usually a Catholic run school, and unfortunately as we're seeing in Canada, that the health outcomes of people in those uh, facilities uh, wasn't always guaranteed. Wow. So it was a, it's a bit yeah. of a bit, bit of a bit of a dark um uh, yeah but this this is the thing that his, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it so I think you know we should uh we should uh, learn from yes we should then learn from history. This touches on like like I said earlier strong feelings of mine because having grown up in a missionary environment in Zambia Central Africa which you know, yep. was 
still is part of the British Commonwealth. Oh, it still is. Okay. A, uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah, Zambia is part of the British Commonwealth. And you know, having grown up in in a missionary environment, in a missionary culture, going to a school in a remote part of Zambia where the only language that was taught and spoken on the school was English, even though, mm-hmm. you know, we would sometimes get a, a Zambian student because his parents, for, for one reason or another, were, were either able to, af- to afford to send them to the school or him or her yep, to yep. the school or ended up in a scenario where it was paid for them. I don't know how they ended up. But anyway, you'd get a, mm-hmm. a local indigenous Zambian coming to the school because it wasn't exclusively white. But they would arrive at the school knowing no English. And so okay. their first couple of terms would be learning English in an extremely uncomfortable environment, you know. And, you know, there weren't many people, some of the teachers maybe were able to speak whatever language they had because Zambia is a culture of multiple indigenous languages. Yes. And so they would struggle the first year until their English became good enough to be able to understand the lessons, etc. Mm-hmm. But it would be. And that's what it was. And their culture was was Christian. I, The only cultural thing that I remember learning growing up there was the Zambian National Anthem and Independence okay. Day for Zambia because it was mandatory in Zambia that we that Independence Day is a day off. So we on the Independence Day, 24th of October every year, no, we would have a celebration around the flag. The flag would get raved, raised. We'd sing the National Anthem. And before any kind of public event, I used to do a lot of swimming in my teenage years. So before okay. every yeah. swimming event, we would have to have the national anthem and stand for the national anthem before the public event would take place. Okay. So we had that kind of thing. So I, that's pretty much all I remember from the culture. I know very little about indigenous Zambian beliefs or indigenous uh, Zambian cultural activities because it was all Christian what I was brought up. And while I adore the country of Zambia, while I adore many of the experiences that mm. I had growing up there, they pretty much, without exception, tainted with Christianity because that was the culture in which I grew up. It was, it was missionary, white, it was basically, evangelical, basically white, white Christianity, yeah. I was going to say, whitewash, you, you, your experience yes. was, was whitewashed. Yes. Yes, uh, absolutely so. So I, I don't know enough Zambian culture, which given you grew up that there. I spent my first 18 years growing up there is embarrassingly shameful but that was the culture in which i grew up yeah yeah that's uh and this is a uh, one of the one of the things that we've we've noticed is that yeah like you know um people even though they may have had good intentions and as i say the road to hell is paved with good intentions um even though they had, they had good intentions um the problem is is that you're basically killing the local culture and trying to transplant your own culture uh, in that and yeah i think it's just a, just a, a little bit weird that yeah you can uh um you can spend 18 years in zambia and not know uh not know much about it um and like that kind of relates something i wanted, uh, wanted to say like for example um, my wife is from indonesia and so when i would go over to her parents place um you know we would stay at her parents place in the outer suburbs of jakarta which is like the the biggest <laughs> the, the the biggest city in mm. 
And you actually learn so much uh, by being with the locals. You learn their language, you learn their customs, you learn how they how how they do things, and you can kind of compare it with your own, and you get this really immersive uh, immersive experience. And this is the thing that I think a fundamentalist, uh, the fundamentalist practice of religion takes away is that, you know, it's basically Jesus or bust and it, like white Jesus or bust. Yeah. As well. Yes, it's like, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah. But where I want to springboard from this is back to uh, the British Commonwealth, because we were talking about, about the Queen and her relationship with other nations mm-hmm. uh, yes. earlier on. And because Australia is still part of the Commonwealth and you hinted earlier about there are mumblings in Australia about maybe leaving the Commonwealth and no longer having lovely Queenie as uh, your head of state state. or whatever status uh, that she has. But, you know, in. So the question I want to ask, because I I don't I, I feel like I'm no longer qualified to have an opinion on this, even though I probably should. In what way do you think religion and the Commonwealth are tied together in nations like Australia and uh, other Commonwealth nations? Uh, I'd have to say that only on a superficial level, um, probably the most religious that we'll get in public life is that um, at the start of each parliamentary session, they do say the Lord's Prayer. Oh, really? Okay. They, they do indeed, yes, but they also say a, a welcome to country, which is sort of like an an, an acknowledgement of the uh, indigenous uh, custodians of the land as well. So there's that. Um, I know th- I know there is a parliamentary Christian fellowship, and a number of MPs do, uh, I suppose, publicly describe themselves as having some sort of uh, Abrahamic monotheistic faith. Right. But I think the reality is is that they're. I think they're ostensibly atheist myself. So the problem we, I suppose, is coming to a head now in that the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is a Pentecostal and he's of the hill, he's like the Hillsong variety Pentecostal right? as well. And that's kind of bit him on the backside. <clears throat> Sorry. Yes, because Hillsong are battling their own controversy at the moment, aren't they? Yes, yes, because uh, what's happened, what, so bit him on the backside the first time when apparently, this is when Donald Trump was still president, the rumour was that Brian Houston, the head of Hillsong, tried to ask Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, to get an official invite to the White House to see Donald Trump. Right. Because Brian Houston and, and Scott Morrison are apparently mates uh, in, in uh, behind the scenes. Um, <clears throat> just trying to think what else. Uh, but then uh, last year, Brian Houston was charged with concealing a child sexual offence because what had happened yes. was back in back in the I think early two thousands or late nineteen nineties, Brian Houston's father Frank had come out and admitted that over the decades uh, he had been abusing young children, especially back in New Zealand where where they're from. Um, and because Brian Houston was the head of the Assemblies of God, which is now called Australian Christian Churches, there's a great name, Brian Houston was effectively in charge of reprimanding his own father. And so instead of going to the authorities, Frank Houston got a golden handshake and uh, retired and sailed off into the sunset. Yes, I remember seeing a documentary about that. I think this is on okay. Netflix. There's a documentary about that, and I remember seeing this I, suggestion yeah. of the of was it Brian covering up the sins yes. of his father. 
And I remember when I watched that and he denied knowledge. And I, I remember sitting there thinking, I'm not sure I believe that denial. No, no, exactly. But then it gets a little bit worse in that last, I think it was either last month or the month before, uh, Brian Houston admitted to walking, uh, spending time in the hotel room of a female member of staff when they, when they were away on conference and of sending inappropriate text messages to uh, women employed by the church. So that caused, Brian, that caused Brian Houston to step down from when he was charged, he stepped down from all these boards attached to Australian Christian churches and Hillsong. But then these couple of revelations that came out caused him to step down from the, what do they call it? The global senior pastor position. So right. he, he, stepped, he stepped down from there. And then his wife was made redundant from her role as assistant senior global pastor. And so Brian Houston came out and said, "Oh, Hillsong, uh, Hillsong have lost their heart. Um, they they don't care about people and all this kind of stuff." And it's just ironic that Hillsong, under his leadership, showed a very callous disregard for callous disregard for people. But then, but then, um, I'll, I'll finish up with this story. Scott Morrison then came out and said that, oh, I haven't been to Hillsong Church for 15 years. I don't know what you're talking about. But then footage was played where Scott Morrison was in was at one of the Hillsong conferences praying on stage with Brian Houston back in like 2015 or something. Right. Yeah, that sounds like a claim that can be fact-checked. You need to be sure yeah, and, and, and certain. And, and, and it was fact-checked, and it kind of plays into – now, I don't want to get too political here, but uh, Scott Morrison does have a trust problem with the Australian public. There's been a few incidences where he hasn't quite been uh, above board with his public statements, and then they get fact-checked, and he, I went, oh, sorry, I miss, I misspoke, I misrepresented that, I didn't give, I didn't have the full information at the time or something. It kind of plays into this, uh, this mindset that Scott Morrison is a Christian trying to protect his Christian friends friends and this kind of goes back yeah. to the racial discrimination act in that he's trying to give christians a free pass to discriminate against people of other relig religions or non-religions bit of an in interesting uh, situation we have here in australia and uh, yeah in four weeks time when uh, when we decide you know if we if the australian public decide they don't like that kind of uh, christian uh, nepotism then they shall vote out uh, the party that represents it so just to clarify that then, so in literally in a month's time, you guys yep. are going to the polls and you may well have a, a new prime minister. Indeed, yes, yes. So the I uh, think uh, Saturday, twenty first of May is when the election. So we're so the election was called two weeks ago. So this so it's a six week uh, lead up to the to the election, and so we're already two weeks in into the uh, right. <laughs> into the campaign. Um, but the, the campaigns the campaign has been going on for about a year because they've been sniping at each other, like both parties been sniping at each other for a long time. And trying to point score, but um, yeah. So four more week, four more weeks time, and uh, yeah, we'll. Uh, and this kind of is another thing that really surprises me about the American uh, American experience. And I think this is, this will be the same as your in yours is that in Australia we have a body called the Australian Electoral Commission that oversees elections. There is none of this like county by county, state by state, you know, running their own show. Once an election is called, the Australian Electoral Commission has the authority and is charged with providing a, you know, a free and fair election that is all completely above board. Right. And it's just interesting. So in America, it literally each state and each county run their own election. 
So, 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 so to run their election and then provide the results up to the next appropriate authority who then provide it to the next appropriate authority okay. and it goes up the chain. Okay. Whereas in Australia, we have one body that, you know, that hires the bingo hall or the church hall or the school hall or something and right. they provide the pieces of paper and the and the ballot box right. and the they do the advertising and say, you know, vote here and if you want to if you want to vote early, well here, here's where you can vote early. And if you want to mail in your votes, well you you have to apply. But you know, we send you a form, you send the form off. Um, and it's all completely above uh, above board even in indigenous remote indigenous areas the australian australian electoral commission will go above and beyond to make sure that indigenous people uh people of non-english speaking backgrounds uh material is produced in various different languages um all, all that kind of stuff and I, I actually worked on a project for the australian electoral commission uh, late last year and there are security requirements that you have to abide by to make sure that you know, it is all above board right and okay. so it's just uh, it's just interesting listening to uh, americans you know complain about their electoral system and go how can we fix it it's beyond repair we don't know what to do and said, "Hey guys, look, look down here. You know, we've got, yeah, we've got it. We've, yeah, we've got a pretty good, we've got a pretty good system. You might want to, you might want to listen to, you know, take a leaf out of our book. Yeah, you know, yeah. all that kind of yes. stuff. Yes, quite. So, I don't know when you're going to edit this audio for your own podcast, but for Still Unbelievable, this audio will probably go out after." You've already had your election, so now's your chance to tell the future. What's your reading on how it's going to go? <laughs> oh, Matt, you're a funny, you're a funny guy. You're a funny guy. Um, I think uh, as of what's the date? The twenty fourth, twenty fourth of April. Um, I think that the Australian Labor Party will win a majority in the in the House of Representatives, which is the lower the lower house, and right. where government is formed. And I think they will win that. Uh, by a very slim margin, I'm going to say four seats. So they'll get a four seat majority, and right. won't need to form a coalition with any other with any other parties. Okay, so that will be a change of government then for you guys. Yes, correct. Yes, yes. So okay. we'll go from a um, a conservative government to a more centrist uh, a more centrist government, though with left wing leanings. Okay, right. And a, just so that I understand. Prior to Scott Morrison, were you a Labour government before that as well? No, your, no, we've. Sorry, because you had a female PM, didn't you? Before we, Scott. well, we did indeed. Ah, yes, your your memory of Australian politics is a somewhat somewhat correct. So we have had a so the equivalent of the Tory Party in Australia is the Liberal Party. Right. Um, which kind of is a little bit funny because you associate Liberals with like left left wing leaning yes. kind of things, but no. Um, yes. Yeah, so they've been in power since uh, I think 2013. But what has happened is that was it 2016? I forget exactly the years. But um, what has happened is that we've changed prime ministers three times. So right. what happens in the Australian system is that it's actually the, the party that has a majority in the lower house. The leader of that party is then the prime minister. Right. So. The one of the things about that is that the party can have a a special general meeting where they call for a spill of positions and whoever wants to nominate for the leadership can then nominate for the leadership. Right. And so it's happened that so currently Scott Morrison is the prime minister. He won the last election back in 2019 and that was seen as a bit of a miracle. 
uh, frankly, that was, I think he actually said, you know, uh, on his election night speech, he said, you know, I, I believe in miracles and this is this is one of them. But he initially became prime minister when he toppled Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm Turnbull was basically a, a very progressive uh, prime minister. Um, he was actually the one that introduced the legislation for same-sex marriage. Right. And he was also trying to introduce legislation to uh, make binding targets for climate change and all, all, all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Malcolm Turnbull got into the prime ministership because he had overthrown Tony Abbott. Now, that's the name I remember. Yes, because he is actually uh, Australia's trade envoy to the United Kingdom. Okay. And he's uh, buddy buddies with uh, Mr. Johnson uh, in 10 Downing Street. <sighs> Yes, that, I think that says all you need to know. But um, before Tony Abbott was prime minister, he had overthrown – no, no, sorry, no. Um, okay, he had defeated Kevin Rudd in an election, but the problem was that Kevin Rudd took the top job from Julia Gillard. Uh, that was the female yes. name I was trying to remember. Yes, yeah. uh, Julia Gillard. So Julia Gillard was prime minister for – just short of three years. So in Australia, they're three-year terms, and she okay. was prime minister for just short of three years when uh, the person that she overthrew for the job, Kevin Rudd, got his job back by basically white-anting her authority and her standing within the party. And so it's all a bit of a tawdry situation where, um, yeah, and you could you could argue that Australian politics is still in that tawdry situation where it's a bit of a where nobody likes each other. It's one of those, uh, one of the, one of those things. But um, yeah, but uh, Julie Gillard probably probably the only professed atheist uh, prime minister that we've had. Right. And yeah, it's just uh, one of those things. So basically, every prime minister that has been in has been either Catholic, uh, Catholic or Anglican or Presbyterian or in this case, in the current case, uh, Pentecostal. Um, but no, Julie Gillard was the only, I suppose, outspoken, outspoken atheist that we've uh, that we've had, and uh, I will say that I don't think she did a good job. But that's, uh, I think, but I think the, the cards were stacked against her in the first place. Right. Okay. So it's a bit of a bit of interesting. But no, I think uh, this is actually one of the topics that we do cover on. Let's save the governor general. I'm going to give that one another plug. <laughs> let's okay, let's save you, the governor. You you do that. It's funny you say that about the way she was treated because I think our previous uh, female Prime Minister, Theresa May, was somewhat maltreated by the, the male yep. establishment in, in British politics. Yep. Given given that you had numerous people literally celebrating when Margaret Thatcher passed away. Yeah. <laughs> yes. it's, like, it's kind of like a, yeah, that's uh but no, one of the things actually you do is you do make a good point that um, Julia Gillard was the target of very gendered attacks. So a lot of things about her personal appearance were criticised. Uh, the fact that she was unmarried, uh, she was criticised for. The, ch- the fact that she didn't have children, she was criticised for. Um, yeah, I, I, I am absolutely dead serious. Um, so she had a partner, but she didn't have a husband. So that uh, was seen as as an attack. Um, there were people who called her. Oh, 
yeah, like they went on the fact that she, yeah, she didn't have children, um, or, 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 or all this kind of stuff. At the worst of it, there was a, uh, just trying to think how, how to put. It. Julie Gillard was planning on implementing a carbon tax. Uh, so if if a big company was going to pollute uh, carbon dioxide into the into the air, they had to pay a special fee for that. That broke an election promise. Uh, there was a big protest out the front of Parliament House about it. And there were literally signs that said, ditch the witch. Wow. Um, and there were signs calling her uh, Bob Brown's bitch. Uh, Bob Brown was the leader of the Greens Party. Um, right. And there were signs going, you know, Bob Brown's bitch, ditch the witch, you know, all, all, all this kind of like very gendered uh, attacks on, on her. Oh, yeah, the ugly side. Hey. Yeah, indeed, yes, um, yes. I mean, obviously, if you're going to break an election promise, you've got to expect some pretty uh, robust pushback uh, against yes. that, regardless of how well-meaning and how potentially good the policy change is. But you're still breaking a promise. No, in, indeed, indeed. But I, I don't think gendered attacks like that. Actually, there's the one incident that I was also going to mention was that on Talkback Radio, there were people asking questions such as, oh, do the Australian taxpayers pay for her, for her tampons? Oh, really? Oh, re- fucking hell, really? That's, uh, yeah, like just dumb shit like that. And yeah. it's, <laughs> yeah, it was just like a very, um, yeah, just like that. Like even if you don't like the job she's doing, don't stoop to that, those kind of, that yeah. kind of level, you know, that was a, um, yeah. Well, I can yeah. tell you with utmost confidence, I do not think that any British tax pounds are spent on hair gel for our current prime minister. <laughs> I don't even think there's a hairdresser involved anyway. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think there's a comb. I don't think there's a comb. I think just no. Morris just wakes up like that and goes, uh, <laughs> yeah. this, this, this is how I'm going to look today. Yeah, yeah it's uh, a... Yeah. Quite, uh, politics, yeah. but um, actually, I'm very surprised. Uh, to kind of swing back to what we were saying before, I'm very surprised that uh, Mr. Johnson hasn't been ousted yet. I'm very, very, because uh, I think when uh, one of his, I saw the video of one of the uh, members of Parliament going, "For the love of God, go!" Yeah, there are some some Tory people who are some some Conservative uh, members of Parliament who mm-hmm. are calling him to go. And they are most certainly on the more sensible side. Our, my local MP, where, where I am, is a Conservative MP, and I've written to him a couple of times okay, yep. asking him to add his voice to the pile of people who are calling for Boris Johnson to go because of his poor integrity and the way that he's bringing yes. Parliament into and the country disrepute. into disrepute. And I've had no because acknowledgement. Hasn't, okay, so I was going to say, has yeah, hasn't um, uh, Cressida Dick resigned because of, of the fiasco as well, the head of the police? She she did resign, but no, I think she was outed more over, not because of what was going on in politics, but over issues that happened uh, on her watch in the Metropolitan Police. Oh, OK. All right. So that that was the reason for her ousting. Life was made so uncomfortable for her because of what was going on that she was forced out. I think that there was gender play involved in that. But at the same time, it was misogynistic behaviour and blatant disrespect of the female gender within her own police force that caused yep. the appalling murder uh, of a 
of a woman by a serving police officer a year ago. Uh, yeah. Yes. And I, so remember. she was already, Cressida Dick had already generated some bad feeling and that murder and the way that, uh, and the fact that that was a serving police officer and the stuff that that uncovered contributed. Yes. Yeah. And so there was very vocal female lack of support for the Metropolitan Police. And uh, I, I think that 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 was really unhelpful towards uh, Cressida Dick. Whether or not she deserved to go is complete. I don't think I'm qualified to say, but certainly with females in London, she had lost support and maybe that was okay. enough. Well, uh, but um, I don't think that's... it was directly related to what's going on in the Conservative Party. Oh, OK, OK. All right. But I'm sure it, it's just a, a funny, uh, a funny coincidence that. Uh, yes. Anyway, these f- funny, funny coincidences sometimes uh, sometimes do happen. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. But we do need more females in strong and uh, senior yep. and public roles like that. I'm absolutely supportive of that. Yep. Yep. As yeah, I've uh, I'm, I'm I'm with you there. I as if you're if you're qualified, you know, we do need more qualified females. And if we can't find qualified females, let's help create some more qualified yes. females. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And moving on a big tangent on that, but staying on the on the gender subject. I yeah. I work in IT. I've worked in IT for my entire working career. Mm-hmm. And I can probably still only count on one hand the number of females that I've worked with. Uh, over those and years. I, I'm with and you as well. I, I, I work I work in IT, and the number of female IT representatives, uh, like in your level one positions, is very low, and the number of females in management positions is even less. Yeah, and uh, so I'm very much in favour of more females, more women working in IT because mm-hmm. I think the IT department needs to more accurately represent the diversity in the rest of the business. Yep. And it typically doesn't. No, it's a, it is it is a bit of a boys club, I, I I have to say. So there we go. So that's my my little thing. So what do you do in IT? Oh, okay. Um, I'm actually uh, I'm I'm doing a help desk uh, stuff at the moment. Okay. Um, I'm working uh, four days a week at a uh, a military parts uh, manufacturer. Okay. And that so, um, so you probably can't yeah. tell me much in detail on that, but you uh, <laughs> exactly. I know uh, if you're familiar with the F-35 planes, um, the the company I'm working at uh, provides, uh, I think, wheels and brakes. If I'm not if I'm not mistaken, right. um, and and they're also helping develop a develop a drone uh, as well. Which is uh, you're right. I can't, I can't say too much, but um, right. <laughs> yeah. But no, um, yeah. But I've been in. So that's currently I'm doing that now. But I've been doing uh, like server relocations and data center stuff, and sure. um, yeah. And in a previous life, I was a uh, a photocopy technician, and that's an even more uh, gendered uh, industry. Very. I think I've only ever met one, uh, or maybe two. Actually, no. I was trying to think. Am I getting things confused? But yeah. Um, the number of uh, field technicians in in IT is uh, yeah. yeah, like if you think the help desk uh, side of it is 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 uh, very gendered, um, yeah, the actual field side of it is. I absolutely can believe that. Yeah, so I'm a software developer, but in our IT okay. department we have help desk as well, and sometimes mm-hmm. I have to help out with the help desk where we're a business that employs a couple of hundred people around the country in various locations. Okay. So. 
yep. reliable IT infrastructure is important for the running of the business. Oh, indeed, yes, and, yes. Uh, that's, uh, I, I write software that is uh, used by about 100, 130 of our employees uh, in the business, and that's going to grow over the next uh, 12 to 24 months, going to grow nice. quite considerably, possibly even double. So it's important that my software works and it's important that we have a reliable help desk and it's important that we have mm-hmm. a developer that can keep on top of the job. So recently uh, hired a couple of other developers. So I've now got a couple of developers working with me. I'm no longer the only one, but they're oh, we're all men. A... <laughs> yeah, we're all men. We, we haven't, got, haven't got a female developer. I think we interviewed one female uh, candidate in okay. the in, in, when we did the round of interviews uh, for an additional developer so they are out there uh, yes this candidate is trying to go on for a second interview which is unfortunate first. oh because i was going to say the other thing that i do notice is that unfortunately i've come across where females are hired for their looks as well yeah there's not, not so much for their uh, for their ability but more just so they're, they're eye candy for the guys to look at and give attention to. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, let me, let me say up front, this is not something I subscribe to, but no. for many years I have been familiar with the phrase within IT that goes along the lines of women in IT are either good at their job or good looking, but you don't get both. Mm-hmm. And yes, when that kind of attitude is so regularly repeated, yep. you know, it's it's going to sit there and then that's going to fuel and feed the misogyny at the top, which then fuels and feeds the attitude which they have when it comes to interview. Yes, and yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And, uh, it's, uh, we, we need to stop that. And I'm I'm going to be quite vocal in, in calling that out if I ever come across it again. I'll, I'll back it up by saying it's not something I've heard now for several years. So let's be hopeful mm-hmm. that that attitude is no longer in existence, certainly not in the circles yes. I'm working in. I'm same, not gonna same, say, yeah. it, it, it's very possible it still exists elsewhere. And let's shame that and let's get rid of it because it doesn't help doesn't help no. our job it doesn't help the men who do the job let alone the women who want to do the job indeed indeed i'm glad things i'm glad things are changing i think hey how, how you go about that change is important you really you really do need everyone on board but you know if everyone's head is in the right place and they realize that you can only get better with better representation then yes. yeah i have a teenage daughter As and she, she 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 is growing up and she's not too far from being an adult and i want her to have the same opportunities that i did and yes. i want her to be able to get into any field that she wants because mm-hmm. of her qualifications not yes. because of physical attributes or what she's got on her chest or between her legs or you know yeah. her backside or anything like that Mm-hmm. I want her to, you know, be confident and mature and smart and headstrong, and I'm doing my doing my part to help her with that. Um, and yeah, it's just that I, yeah, if, if I came across uh, something as blatantly sexist as some customers that I've walked into, <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. Um, but as I said, I'm glad I'm glad things are changing in that. You know, my daughter is growing up into a world that is better and more egalitarian than what I grew up in. Yes, absolutely. My daughter's growing up and planning on going into a working world like, where yeah. her her ability and her confidence to call out um, misgenderism or however we want to phrase it, uh, where she has that ability and that confidence to be able to call it out, whereas it wasn't that many decades ago 
where women just had to put up and shut up and just deal yeah. with the system as it was and do their best in a system that was stacked against them. Don't, now, don't, don't be a women, troublemaker. That's yes. Yeah. Whereas now women are more empowered to actually speak out against it and long may yeah. that be the case. Indeed, indeed. Um, I'm going to I'm going to uh, wrap it up if I can wrap it up shortly. I've got the uh, kids to look after and uh, think things to plan for tomorrow. And okay, yeah, yeah, fine. So um, absolutely, thank you for this chat. It's, it's been pleasant. Just be, before you go, there's um, something I want to call out. I should have done this right at the beginning, but people are going to have to wait for it until the end. I want to <laughs> give good. a shout out to a couple of Facebook groups for people who are in our position as in former Christians, wherever you are on your mm. on your sure. status, be from mm-hmm. in transition from Christian to atheism, maybe you're a doubting Christian, maybe you're like me, you're a hard-nosed a- atheist. <laughs> there are a couple of Facebook groups that I'd like to promote. One is called Born Again Again, and the other one okay. is called Deconversion Anonymous. They are both Facebook groups that are geared towards people who are deconstructing, doubting and questioning your Christian faith. This kind of subjects that uh, Damien and I have been uh, discussing in for the last uh, hour and a half are certainly the kind of things that are welcome there. If you have your, if you want to rant about your experiences of Christianity or just ask your own searching questions about mm-hmm. where you go now in your deconversion or, or deconstruction journey, they are going to be safe groups for you. You'll find sympathy and you'll find support in those groups. So if you're not a part of either of those groups or you haven't joined either of those groups i would like to recommend both of them because you will find that there'll be a friendly community waiting for you in both of those groups that's what we need a, a, a atheist supporting atheists yes yes and, it, and, to, it, and, to, and to get to the point where you can be comfortable around religious people and in religious ceremonies and talking real, talking with religious people yes Absolutely. Anything that you want to call out and shout out and promote oh, besides your just, podcast again, Damien? <laughs> yes. So again, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna plug uh, let's let's save the Governor General. Uh, that's my uh, that's my Australian politics podcast that I do with uh, Phoebe Rose and, and Clancy. Um, if they do listen to this, hi. Um, my wrestling podcast. I do a pro wrestling podcast with a guy called Mr. Lightning, who is an independent wrestler himself. So wrestling with atheism uh so yeah we've got, we've got a few episodes there and yeah because uh, I've, I've i've been a lifelong uh, professional wrestling uh fan so that's you're a, a busy complete... guy aren't you uh, yes uh, something like that and my main podcast is the tall friendly atheist dad podcast where it's more of a personal look into me and i give uh, my personal thoughts on a lot of things i go on rants i um my last episode as of the time of recording this uh, my latest episode was with deborah grace who is the author of crucifying the bible so had a bit of uh, had a bit of a chat about you know how she came to be deconverted and why she wrote her book and uh, one of the other things that we spoke about was the uh, blowback that she gets um, in response to her book and some of the misogynist comments that she gets and the pornography she gets sent to her because she is a you know an active female atheist uh, that's a bit heart wrenching towards the end a bit, bit disgusting. Man, but don't be like that, really. Yeah, don't exactly. Come on, guys, get, make us look good. Uh, and before that, um, I I took a leaf out of your book and uh, responded to Braxton Hunter's Ten Questions for Atheists. Yes, I need to listen to that. I've seen you've done that, but I haven't listened <laughs> to your answers, so I need to. And jump and, and the and the, the man himself the man himself responded. Well, he, he gave me like a thumbs up and waved hi, and it was like, hey, you know, cool. Excellent. Cool. What we should do is next time he does one, we should 
join forces and you should come oh, and, uh, yeah. and we can do a do a, I was going to say threesome. You know, you myself and Andrew, we should uh, hit them all together. That would be quite interesting. That would that would be yes. Um, and I do have a uh, I know Cameron Bertuzzi from Capturing Christianity put out his three questions for atheists that I've actually got lined up in about four weeks time. Have you? Okay, I'm looking forward to that because we responded to that one as well. Yes, it's a lot, it's like I'm following you guys <laughs> metaphorically and and literally as well. You're so. gonna have to yeah, you have to jump in there ahead of us at, at one point. <laughs> No, um, we are we have got another questions one frank Turek did a four questions that prove christianity <sighs> I, yeah i kind of responded uh, similarly so andrew and i are, are planning on doing a response to that one it's, okay it, it it is it is painful um okay yeah. to actually the, the the first 10 minutes of uh frank's podcasts made my skin climb off my yes, back and jump yes. into the bin well it's, actually just so just on, just on. made it to the end of his, his podcast so i need to give it another go but yeah it was awful <laughs> No, fair enough, because I was going to say, the other thing I want to plug is uh, my YouTube channel. If you go onto YouTube and search for the Tall Friendly Atheist podcast, I actually do a, a reading series uh, where I read uh, books from both the theist and atheistic perspective and okay. uh, just give my give my thoughts on that. And one of the books I'm doing is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Right. Um, I'm, I've am i done 17 parts. And I'm probably into chapter four at the moment. I'm right. only like... I'm probably only a quarter of the way through the book because when I read a paragraph, my blood pressure rises and there's just, there's just so much bad argumentation and inanity yes. and straw men and equivocation. And yeah, he really is one of the worst high profile apologists he uh, He's awful, isn't he? out there. Like you got Braxton Hunter, who I think is a genuine stand up guy, you know, who's very friendly, very honest and sincere. And then you have Ray Comfort and Frank Turek who are, apologists and that's the best thing i can say about him yeah i would add john lennox to that list of oh, okay. yep. bad people mm. in that space indeed indeed anyway matthew I'm, i might run yeah okay have a lovely one damien we will catch up again <laughs> online at, at some point and communicate and indeed uh, we'll we will have that conversation with andrew as well when we can shut it in thank you so much for sparing your time this sunday evening oh matthew thank you for thank you for inviting me um i look forward to uh yeah do, catching up with uh, andrew as well and doing a doing a th- uh, yeah doing a three-way keep interacting with you on twitter because yeah some of the some of the stuff that you say are really uh really responsive and it resonates with me oh thank you and um and uh yeah um <laughs> thank you so much All right. Cheers. Have a good one. Good day, mate. (laughs) Thank you so much, Matt.